The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. There was recently a report released by the Government Accountability Office about the security clearance reciprocity process. If you are working in national security, you have probably heard of reciprocity or now transfer of trust. The notion is that if you get a clearance, you should be able to transfer that clearance to other agencies. As long as there have been security clearances, however, there have been issues with this topic of reciprocity and actually being able to transfer that eligibility without a redundancy of effort. It's something that the Government Accountability Office has looked into. So today we're talking with Alyssa Siz. She is the Director of the Defense Capabilities Management at the Government Accountability Office, authored this recent report about security clearance reciprocity. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for chatting with me today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Lindy, for having me. The personnel security process has been on and off the GAO's high-risk list. It's currently on. Before we kind of dive into this reciprocity report, I was hoping you could kind of talk about what it means to be on the GAO high-risk list. How does a program get on there and kind of what does that entail? Sure, happy to. So GAO has a list of high-risk programs across the federal government. We have criteria for this list. And really, in a nutshell, it's programs that are either at high risk of fraud, waste, or abuse. Or in this case, it's programs that are in need of significant transformation. So you're right. We put the government-wide personnel security clearance process on our list in 2018. It had been on there previously. We had taken it off after seeing some progress, but we put it back on in 2018, primarily for a couple reasons. One, we were seeing delays with the clearance process overall. There was a lack of quality measures for the process, and then also a lot of challenges for the information technology systems that agencies use to manage the personnel security clearance process. So it's been on there for about six years now. We do an update every couple years. There's been some progress in the area, and in fact, we continue to see some progress in some of the recommendations that we've made, but it is still on the high-risk list primarily because of issues with the IT system. Mm, You're talking all my love languages. So I like to stay I'm perpetually positive. So I appreciate progress. But IT systems, I feel like that's shows you actually understand this process, because I feel like there's a lot of talk about the personnel security vetting process without kind of an acknowledgement of NBIS, the National Background Investigation Services, and all of the IT systems that are underpinning it. So I appreciate hearing that. Kind of talk about this reciprocity report, because I wanted to discuss your latest research around this. What prompted you to write this report on security clearance reciprocity? Maybe what are some of the key findings or takeaways? 
Sure. So this was a request from the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability, and they were interested in exactly kind of what you previewed at the beginning of this interview, how well reciprocity was working among federal agencies. We did also look a little bit at contractors, too, that do work with the federal government. And so we have a little bit on that, but we were primarily focused on kind of what we call the transfer of trust, right? If somebody has a security clearance, or a vetting determination at one agency and wants to take a job at another agency, that agency in general is supposed to accept that previous personal vetting determination. So our client was interested in finding out you know, how the process was working, the extent to which there was reciprocity, and what are some of the key challenges in that area. And I should also say, too, we didn't just look at the personnel security clearance process. We looked at personnel vetting kind of in three different areas. So one is just employment, right, with the federal government. Another one is access to federal facilities. And for both of those areas, the Office of Personal Management is in charge of those vetting processes. And then the third one being security clearances, so access to classified or sensitive information. And the Office of Director of National Intelligence oversees the security clearance process for the federal government. That's a great nuance to point out. It's, it's something that comes up often at clearance jobs when we're talking about this because we have the security clearance process and we know it's very clear clear the policies around that. I think there's a decent amount of transparency around the security clearance process for a program that's all about keeping secrets. But the employment, the like you said, the facilities, the suitability side of it is often we refer to that as the wild, wild west of kind of the onboarding and vetting process, because there can be a lot of requirements and a lot of different processes happening when it comes to suitability that aren't necessarily a part of the security clearance process. I believe the report touched on that a little bit. Would you want to speak to kind of that suitability versus security clearance piece of it? Right. So I can back up a little bit and say kind of the main focuses of our report. So one was looking at these three processes, right, and the extent to which ODNI and OPM have reliable data on reciprocity. So in looking at the suitability and fitness piece of this and credentialing piece, that would be OPM that we took a look at, about how they're collecting data on reciprocity in those areas. And then with ODNI, it was the security clearance process. And we really found some challenges on all sides, right? So with OPM, we found that they don't collect information and the system, the IT system that they're using does not collect information on reciprocity for that suitability and fitness. They have some measures that are close, but not quite, but it's a limitation of their IT system. They do, and you referenced earlier, INVIS, right, the National Background Investigation Services system that is being developed. That system is supposed to allow for that measurement of reciprocity for suitability and fitness. There is a path to get there for OPM on that issue. On ODNI, though, they will not be using INVIS, so the intelligence community will generally not be using that system. So it's really important for ODNI to come up with ways to get reliable data on reciprocity. We also found with ODNI that they were requiring agencies to report to them on a number of things regarding personal security clearances, reciprocity being one of those things, but there were a number of problems that we found with the reporting from agencies. And the bottom line there was that ODNI also did not have reliable data on reciprocity for security clearances. We did make a recommendation there with ODNI to kind of 
look at their data reliability practices, to follow best practices that GIO has published actually for data reliability, because INBIS is not going to solve the issue for ODNI. I mean, maybe that's a good thing because I'm waiting for INBIS to solve a lot of problems that seems to like it might never happen. More on that later. But I wanted to talk a little bit about something that I thought was really interesting from the report. You kind of surveyed these agencies about this reciprocity piece. And of the 31 agencies you surveyed, 17 said they sometimes don't trust the security clearance granted by another agency. And that's a common thing that we hear. And I think this is one of the things that Congress kind of pushes back on, like, hey, why can't we get reciprocity? And then when you actually look at this at the agency level and find the security folks working this piece of it, you simply do not trust the investigations that other agencies are doing. So the stovepipes are very real. And again, I think sometimes they can they can cloak that in suitability determination so that they have these additional requirements that their agencies require. But a lot of times they won't even lift the baseline SF-86 data and trust that to transfer over. Can you kind of speak to that kind of what, you know, this culture of distrust amongst the agencies and whether, is there any path out of that? You're exactly right. I mean, our report kind of identified a, a couple of different issues, some being technology issues with IT systems, but others being cultural issues. And this kind of lack of trust among some agencies to accept personnel vetting decisions from other agencies was a real issue that came up in our survey and conversations with agency officials. It is, it's a bit of a stovepipe. Agencies have their own processes and some of them we found were redoing investigations that they were generally required to accept. Some of them you alluded to kind of additional requirements. They had different policies for what they would accept and not accept. But this culture of, you know, not trusting each other's decisions did come up prominently in our survey. So we did make a recommendation to ODNI to develop and implement a plan to address agencies' concerns. And we do think that doing so could lead to, you know, a greater acceptance of reciprocity and kind of speed up the onboarding for folks if they move around the federal government. When you do these reports, you're making recommendations to often the government agencies and also sometimes there's recommendations to Congress to kind of create maybe accountability structures. Can you kind of talk about the different deliverables or things that come out of a one of your reports? Sure. So yes, when we do find issues with a federal program, often our kind of first course of action is to make a recommendation to the agency or agencies involved in that program. And we do get those kind of draft recommendations with the agencies prior to developing our final report. We get their perspectives. We want those recommendations to be actionable, to cost efficient, you know, doable and implementable. So we do have a lot of conversations with the agencies and we get formal comments on our recommendations from the agencies as well. That's usually our first course of action. If we think it's something that Congress could get involved in, in helping to address the issue by passing legislation, or perhaps we've looked at the issue for a number of years We have recommendations and the agencies haven't um, taken steps to address those recommendations. We will make what we call a matter for congressional consideration where we would suggest to Congress that they may want to require the agencies to implement our recommendations or to take some, some actions. I will say in this area, so for INVIS, actually, we did put out a report last summer finding that INVIS did not have a reliable cost estimate or schedule to, you know, make sure that it's completed as it should be. And we know the full costs of bringing the system on board. We did that after kind of making a recommendation to DOD itself for the schedule and DOD had not fully done that. 
So we raised that to a matter for congressional consideration. So that's an example of where we might direct something for Congress. In this report on reciprocity, we had eight recommendations and they were kind of split between ODNI and OPM, depending on which office had responsibility for the issue that we were discussing. So whether it was suitability and fitness or whether it was the personnel security clearance process. So I remember reading your IMBIS report and kind of what some of the takeaways were from that. It kind of appears a little bit in this issue of reciprocity because so much of what the government is saying they hope to accomplish, especially with suitability and the transfer of trust piece, they're seeing Imbis as combining a lot of these disparate IT systems, which the ability of the IT systems to communicate is one of the biggest issues. How do the reports tie in together? So you're doing a report about Imbis. Does some of that research kind of carry over into what you're doing now? Do you see those correlations between you're looking at this system and then it ties into what you're doing with this report on reciprocity? Right. Imbis is key to kind of overhauling the personal vetting process for the federal government. So we've been following it since its development several years ago. It did surface again on the reciprocity. You're absolutely right, because some of the reasons, right, for the challenges with reciprocity were because the IT systems, for example, couldn't record multiple personal vetting determinations, right? And so you need an IT system, as INBIS is supposed to do, that will correct that issue. Another issue where INBIS came up as needing to be there was for OPM, right? Their system doesn't include kind of descriptions of somebody's core responsibilities. And why is that important? It's because maybe their background and things in their background, it depends on kind of what position they're taking, right? So if they're not working, for example, like in a law enforcement position, maybe having a criminal record, you know, depending on what the circumstances were, would be okay for that position they're in. But they want to move to another position that involves law enforcement where they, that would not be correct. But OPM system doesn't have any details about the why somebody did or did not get a personal vetting determination and what core responsibilities or position description that they had. So that's another area where Envis will hopefully step in and correct those issues. And then like kind of another one I'll highlight too, and it was a problem with both OPM and ODNI was the IT systems not having accurate or complete information. Sometimes that information was outdated and it's a very manual process in some instances to enter the information at agencies. INBIS should help to try to kind of automate things where it can. Again, ODNI won't be using INBIS. Yeah, I mean, the data entry point is a great piece of it. I did the GA report had a great little graph in it that I really appreciated that kind of outlined some of the key plans are addressing these challenges and plans are not addressing these challenges. And the IT systems having incomplete or inaccurate information was one of them. And that's something that comes up. And we talked about DCSA had this where they were doing this swivel chair model for a while as they were kind of getting from JPASS to DIS, where they were asking folks to put in information twice. And I love the security profession, but there's a lot of humans in that profession. So I think reports like this highlight, like that data entry matters. I know it can seem very mundane and rote, but it really can affect somebody's eligibility down the road because as they try to transfer trust, if they have incomplete information in there, just because somebody got too lazy or you know missed the mark, 
we see that all the time at clearance jobs, kind of those employment impacts as a result of just simple things like not having great data and IT systems management and accountability around that. So I do appreciate that you know your report highlights that. Right. And, and we found that with ODNI's process too, with these agencies having to report to ODNI about personal security clearances, right? There was a lot of inconsistent reporting. Some of the agencies were kind of rolling up all of their data at a headquarters level. Others were reporting by component. Some of them weren't filling out all of the data fields. Some of them didn't know that they had to report certain things. So it was a very manual process there as well. Definitely agree. The more automation and less reliability on kind of manual processes has the potential to improve things. Yeah. And even just simple things like not allowing an incomplete record, you know, to be put in the system. You're report was certainly significant when when it was released. And I think we're seeing some of that come into fruition because without the lack of accurate timelines and cost estimates, I feel Imbis, they keep kicking the can out on that. And so we're like, will it ever come? I do not know. But I think that's one of the key reasons why we're going to see the personnel vetting process continue to be on this high risk list. You know, on a positive note, DCSA did agree with the findings of that report that they do need to have a cost estimate and a reliable schedule. I'm rooting for you, DCSA. I'm also not going to hold my breath. I'm allowed to say that. Are there other projects or things that you're working on? Like I've seen this Imbus report, reciprocity. When it comes to the research on personnel vetting or kind of the things that the GEO is looking into, are there other key areas you know that you're currently exploring or topics or issues around this process that are within your research purview right now? Yes. So we continue to follow up on our high-risk area and have regular conversations with OBM, OMB, and ODNI on the personal security clearance process and personal vetting process as part of our high-risk follow-up. We also have two new reviews that have just started. One is for the House Armed Services Committee, and we are looking at, interestingly, um, timely for this conversation, the reliability of data in the personal security process. So we're going to really dig into kind of what data do agencies have, how are they capturing that data, and what ODNI is doing to improve the reliability. The second review that we're starting up, we'll be reporting both to the Armed Services Committees and the Intelligence Committees on looking at Trusted Workforce 2.0. And we were asked to do a survey of customers of Trusted Workforce 2.0 and get their perspectives on how that transition is going and if there are any challenges there too. So we'll be surveying some select federal agencies and contractors and perhaps even some applicants to get a range of perspective. I'm excited. Alyssa, I'm the only person. I'm not the only person. I'm sure there's lots of other people who are very excited, but I'm very excited for that research. I think it's, it's super timely and important. Again, the reliability of data, status update on Trusted Workforce 2.0. I always appreciate the research that you're doing. And I think we probably don't love seeing the personnel vetting process continue to be on these high risk lists, but I do appreciate the insights and the efforts and the work that you're doing to create some accountability and transparency around the process that is super important to the many applicants and companies and also to the government who wants to have the best cleared talent and folks that they can have. So really important research that you're doing at GAO and really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about it. Well, thank you. Appreciate those kind words. Welcome back. This is Sean Bigley and Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. And Lindy, tax time is on the horizon. And 
I think it's a time of the year that we all sort of, you know, dread to some extent, not so much because we have anything to hide or we've, we've done anything wrong, but just, you know, the hassle really more than anything. With that comes some avoidable security clearance risks. I don't know about you, Lindy, but this is certainly an area that I learned a lot more than I ever wanted to about as a result of being an investigator and being a security clearance attorney for as long as I was. I'm sure you've encountered it lots on clearancejobs.com with people writing in you know, questions about their tax concerns and how it's going to impact their security clearance. Off the top of your head, I mean, is there any persistent theme that you've seen here with areas of questioning or anything like that comes to mind? Yeah, I love this topic because, well, first, because I haven't had to file my taxes in years because my brother's a CPA. So my first hot tip is just find a relative and just stop thinking about it. What might surprise folks, or maybe not, is people don't ask about taxes. I feel like if you're the kind of person who forgets to pay your taxes, you're not the kind of person who's proactive enough to ask a site like Clearance Jobs about paying your taxes. But where I learned a lot about this is in my active perusal as number one fan of the Doha cases. If you have failed to file your taxes for several years, the government gets a little pissed about it. It makes sense to me because you think about it, you're applying for a national security career. So if you do not have an understanding that you have to pay taxes every year, I feel like it's just a wise choice by the government to say, sorry, you probably need to work in the private sector. But we would see those cases of just people who did not pay their taxes. Oh, I didn't think I owed this year, so I just didn't file. I mean, in just a huge swath of ignorance about the process. And when I found it, it was helpful, to, again, looking through the cases because there were incidents where someone had not filed because of there was an estate dispute, right? They inherited something and then it was going to mess with their taxes. And this is where the paper trail always helps you. So we saw some cases where people had some pretty messy tax situations were able to get out of it. What was really hard to overcome was just the lump just did not file their taxes over multiple years and then shrug their shoulders. And even if they kind of tried to catch up, I think that's something it just it's a red flag for the government. If your allegiance to the United States is not enough for you to even like pay attention to your taxes, we're really not sure about your ability to protect national security information. Yeah. You know, every year I see some story in the news about how many people at the IRS, as a result of some GAO audit or something, have been discovered to have not paid their taxes. And that one has always, you know, just been really astounding to me. And I, every once in a while, I would see this in practice where, you know, somebody would be working at the IRS or they'd be applying to the IRS and they would have, you know, tons of delinquent taxes. And I would just be like, you know, this is going to be a really tough sell. Like, I'll do my best for you. But I, I mean, you know, you, you can't really make the ignorance argument. Just like, you know, people applying to, for example, DEA, you know, with a, a extensive history of drug use are going to struggle. These are like basic suitability issues that arise on a fairly regular basis in the government. I think your broader point is one worth reiterating. And that is that these cases, in my experience, fall into kind of two broad categories. One being the case of somebody historically has done everything right. And then some weird, convoluted, complicated mess happens with their taxes where they are dealing with a trust or they're dealing with some obscure you know, sale of some asset or something. And they just run into these complicated tax issues. And that was something that really struck me is just how 
complicated and how needlessly complicated the tax code can be. I took tax law in law school. It was a required class back then. And everybody just was like, oh my God, get me out of here. This is the most boring topic you could possibly imagine. But it actually wound up serving me very well later in practice because I was able to say, okay, yeah, I know what this is. I have at least enough of a baseline knowledge to say, okay, we're dealing with this issue. Here's you know your starting place and you need to go do X. Invariably, that X was, you need to go talk to an accountant because I I can't help you. This is too complicated. I'm not a tax attorney. The takeaway there, go talk to an accountant. Don't try to do this on your own. You know, my biggest piece of advice on this to my clients, and, and I think this applies to the general population of security clearance holders as well, is if you've got tax problems in your background, the time to clean them up is not after you've submitted your application or your reapplication. It's like yesterday. I would counsel people on a fairly regular basis saying, hey, I know this job application looks enticing or I know that this job offer sounds great, but you really ought to think twice about pursuing it until you get your taxes cleaned up. Now's not the time to apply for that clearance upgrade. I'm assuming you would tell people the same thing based on what you've seen, but what else, you know, from your perspective has has come up here? And then I want to talk briefly about the three places that, that I've seen this be a particular issue. Yeah. Taxes will catch you. And so my other takeaway is just that people ask a ton over at clearance jobs about outside employment. Hey, can I accept XYZ job or overseas property or things like that? And my first caveat with that is like, make sure you're paying your taxes on it and make sure you're paying employment taxes because I see that come up with outside employment or things like that. It's less the employment issue than it is. The taxes are more likely to cause issues on those other topics too. So I think understanding the scope of how wide the the government's hold on your finances may be behooves you because we'll see financial issues come up in other ways. And it's because people, it's not just your employment taxes, it's business taxes, or again, outside stocks, other things. And those will come up in a security clearance background investigation process. And especially under continuous vetting now, I think there's less opportunities for folks to hide things. I think more things will come up if you're not paying taxes around other things. Let's talk specifically about exactly that issue and some of the you know specific ways that we've seen this come up in surprising contexts, one of which is paying domestic workers, i.e. you know, full-time live-in nanny or something along those lines, under the table. There is such a thing as the nanny tax. It's not a myth. You have to payroll taxes on your household employees, meaning you have to pay their Social Security and Medicare, the employer's portion of it. There are also often state level requirements as well, depending on what state you live in, in terms of filing, registration, workers' comp. I used to see probably a few times a year, people who would get themselves into trouble with this issue. Often folks who were at a fairly high level in the government where they were maybe under consideration for some sort of high level appointment, a presidential appointment, or you know an agency head position or something like that, where this would really come back to bite them. There have been a handful of news stories about people this issue has tanked over the years. The other area was unreported income in weird contexts. So for example, working under the table, the applicant themselves was working under the table or had been previously. They had a rental property where they weren't paying taxes and reporting the income there. Crypto, that's something we've talked about, obviously, in the context of crypto itself. But you know, previously, there wasn't anywhere explicitly to report that income 
on the tax reporting forms, however it was expected to be reported. And so now there's a little box on the tax return that asks, you know, have you held any digital currencies? And so it's it's kind of flagging it for people. And then lastly, and this is one that always surprised me how prevalent this was, but confusion around this non-existent quote unquote three-year rule, people were under this erroneous impression based on poorly worded language on the IRS website that they had three years to file their tax return. When in reality, the three-year rule is you're required to file on the due date, but if you're owed a refund you and you file late, you have three years to claim it. Those are the kind of surprising things that I would see come up on a pretty regular basis. You know, just hopefully a good reminder, file your taxes on time. It's one of the biggest ways that clearance holders get themselves tripped up. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance and Security. Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.